Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode nine of the Forge of Freedom. It's great to be with everyone again. And uh, before we jump into the topic for the day, what is the Second Amendment? I just want to tell you a little bit about the podcast. I'm an attorney and a firearms instructor and a husband with a passion for freedom. At the Forge of Freedom, we believe that freedom is the highest political goal. And we believe that individuals thrive where freedom and personal responsibility coexist. Without a populace that shares a passion for freedom and personal responsibility, the world can quickly devolve into tyranny. And it is our hope that this podcast can help motivate our listeners and those around them to create and preserve freedom for themselves and for future generations. But the task of creating and preserving freedom is not an easy one. Freedom is not given to us by government, and it is not passed on in the bloodstream. Freedom is forged through personal responsibility and continued vigilance, and we want to motivate you and equip you with the knowledge, the skills, and the attitude to develop your body, mind, and soul for the task of living a freer life and creating a freer world. We want you to have the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. We want you to be the Forge of Freedom. With that said, I have one other announcement to make. Um, As I said, I'm an attorney. My dad is also an attorney. His name is Mike Uli, and uh, we teach a legal seminar on the use of force in self-defense. And the seminar is about five hours long, and we think it contains the essentials of what people need to know if they want to uh, possess, use, carry a firearm for self-defense and the legal ramifications of that decision. Uh, And that that seminar, we talk about uh, sort of the, the decision to keep and possess and carry a firearm, but we also talk about the implications of its use and the decision, the elements that have to be present before you use a firearm in self-defense. Um, we talk about other issues like reciprocity, castle doctrine, stand your ground, um, you know, things that are useful to people who carry a firearm. Uh, but we're going to be teaching that class on April 2nd at 1 p.m. in Salem, Indiana, and we're going to be having the class at the Salem Assembly of God. Uh, so if that's something that's of interest to you, check out the, uh, there's a, an event on our Facebook page at the Forge of Freedom. Check that out. It's April 2nd at 1 p.m. Uh, so with that, let's go ahead and jump into the talk, topic for, for the day. What is the Second Amendment? You, re, you might recall from episode 5 where we discussed the Bill of Rights 
and the compromise that took place between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. At the time of the founding, there was this debate about what form of government we should have. And before the adoption of the Constitution, there was this ongoing debate, public debate, between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists about whether we should adopt a more centralized form of government. And the Anti-Federalists wanted a Bill of Rights that would explicitly protect uh, certain fundamental rights. And the Federalists weren't keen uh, to this idea because they believed that by enumerating uh, certain rights that that sort of assumed that the government had the power to regulate those rights in the first place. But nevertheless, uh, there was a compromise struck and the first 10 amendments were adopted to the Constitution as the Bill of Rights. And the Second Amendment, of course, is one of those amendments. And the Second Amendment, which was ratified on December 15, 1791, simply says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment, as you can tell, protects the right to keep and bear arms. And this is not this was not a new concept at the time of the founding. It's something that existed within English common law long before the adoption of the Bill of Rights or before the founding of the United States. Uh, in fact, 18th century English jurist uh, and judge Sir William Blackstone uh, described this right, and I'll just read you this quote, as a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. And so, at the time of the founding, the Anti-Federalists wanted something in writing that would prevent a central government from taking away that right. And the Second Amendment, and this is an important thing to, to realize, doesn't give us any rights. It simply recognizes a pre-existing natural right to self-preservation. And uh, it, the Second Amendment is, is meant to recognize and protect that right, not to give us that right. Uh, you'll notice the, the language of the Second Amendment says the right of the people. So it by saying the right, it's a right that already exists. It's recognizing that right. And of course, the Bill of Rights initially was meant to apply only to the federal government. So the first ten amendments did not restrict the states. It, it only, or state government officials, it only restricted the federal government and federal government officials. Nevertheless, the states uh, developed their own version of the Second Amendment. And um, in Indiana, where I'm from, the Indiana Constitution under Article One, Section 32 says, the people shall have a right to bear arms 
for the defense of themselves and the state. So we've got this protection um, in the Bill of Rights under the Second Amendment uh, from infringing on the right to keep and bear arms by the federal government, and then the state, as in as by example here in Indiana, also has a constitutional protection that prevents state government, the state government and state government officials from infringing on the right to keep and bear arms. And that remained the case for quite some time. The Bill of Rights only applied to the federal government until uh, after the Civil War when the 14th Amendment was adopted. And through the 14th Amendment and a process called selective incorporation, certain portions of the Bill of Rights were incorporated, were interpreted to apply not only to federal government um, action, but also to state government action. And there weren't really many cases interpreting the Second Amendment until the early 20th century. And that's mostly because there really wasn't much government regulation of the right to keep and bear arms. So if there was no regulation, there was no gun control, there was no need for litigation or for cases to challenge government action uh, under the Second Amendment. And that remained the case really up to the early 20th century when uh, there was this uh, dispute uh, or violence that occurred in Chicago during Prohibition. And it, there was this ongoing uh, feud between uh, rival gangs uh, of Bugs Moran, who led an Irish gang, and Al Capone, uh, who, who led an Italian gang. And this culminated in the what's commonly known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, where seven members and associates of Bugs Moran's uh, Northside gang were, were murdered. Um, and it's not with certainty, but the belief is that they were murdered by members of Al Capone's uh, gang, or at least his associates. And these murders occurred, uh, like I said, in the context of prohibition. So you have these rival gangs that exist primarily because of prohibition and the black market for alcohol. Um, but the uh, murderers used two Thompson submachine guns. And there was this outcry to do something. Just like you see today, whenever there's a tragedy, there's always a call to do something, even if that something will do no good or would have done nothing to prevent the tragedy. Nevertheless, as a result of this St. Valentine's Day massacre and the use of Thompson submachine guns, uh, the National Firearms Act of 1934 was proposed and adopted. And this National Firearms Act of 1934 imposed a registration and tax requirement on certain items. It was a $200 tax, which was very prohibitive in 1934. It would be equivalent to approximately $4,000 in 2021. 
And the National Firearms Act defined a number of categories of items that would be subject to this registration and taxation requirement, including machine guns, short-barreled rifles, short-barreled shotguns, suppressors, and items called destructive devices uh, or any other weapons, which have very sort of narrow and specific definitions. Um, destructive devices would be things like grenades, uh, poisonous gas weapons. Uh, any other weapons might be something like uh, explosive devices disguised as pens or cigarette lighters, uh, knives or umbrella guns. Um, but they're very narrow, uh, narrowly defined items. But anyway, these these items under the National Firearms Act of 1934 had to be registered and had to be uh, a tax had to be paid to possess these items. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was at the NRA annual meeting with my father, and we were there for their, the legal seminar that they have on the Friday of the uh, of the event. And the legal seminar includes many uh, well-known or highly respected or knowledgeable uh, speakers in areas related to firearms, law, legislation, etc. One of the speakers was an ATF uh, agent who was talking about the NFA. And the speaker uh, said that, you know, and he's, remember, he's speaking to a crowd that's very pro-liberty, pro-Second Amendment, uh, and he says, you know, we should just be thankful that the $200 tax that was imposed in 1934 hasn't been raised uh, commensurate with inflation. And it, you can you might imagine he got a uh, sort of a cold response to that comment. Uh, it was actually quite enjoyable. Um, it just sort of shows you how, how deaf he was to the, to the audience. But remember, um, getting back to the subject here, in 1934, the Second Amendment still only restricted federal government action. And this NFA, National Firearms Act of 1934, is one of the first examples of gun control by the federal government. And... The NFA gave rise to a case, uh, United States versus Miller, um, that challenged the constitutionality of the, the NFA in this taxation and registration requirement. Well, the court in that case um, gave a pretty confusing and convoluted um, opinion about the Second Amendment and about the NFA, but ultimately upheld the tax under the NFA. And that 1939 case in Miller has been used by various courts since then to uh, uphold uh, gun control legislation around the country. And that remained the case, really, until 2001, 
when the Court of Appeals, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in 2001 in a case called United States versus Emerson issued an opinion that said that the Second Amendment to the United States guarantees an individual right to keep and bear arms. And remember this sort of convoluted opinion in Miller from 1939, it was used to show that, uh, or used or interpreted by many courts who were not friendly to the Second Amendment to suggest that the Second Amendment is a collective right, not an individual right. That the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, suggests that this is not an individual right, this is a collective right. And many courts interpreted the Miller decision to say that. And that was until this 2001 case in the Fifth Circuit, uh, which includes Texas, uh, said that no, it's the Second Amendment doesn't protect a collective right, it protects an individual right. And I'll come back to that point a little bit later about this individual versus collective right idea. So 2001, we have a, an intermediary circuit court, the Fifth Circuit, issues an opinion saying it's an individual right. Well, now we have what's called a circuit split. So the court system in the United States is composed of three basic levels. There's the trial court level, which is the first level where you bring a case. And then if a party doesn't like a decision or doesn't agree with a decision and they want to appeal that decision, they would appeal to the intermediate court or a federal circuit court, as we sometimes call it. And then there's one more opportunity for appeal in the federal court system beyond that, and that's the United States Supreme Court. Well, there are thousands of cases every year that are appealed for review by the Supreme Court, but the United States Supreme Court doesn't have the ability to hear all these cases. So they have to be selective and prioritize the cases that they decide to hear. And one of the ways they prioritize cases is by trying to resolve disputes between the intermediate circuit or appellate courts. So if the Fifth Circuit issues an opinion that's not consistent with an opinion from the Seventh Circuit, which includes Indiana, then the court, the Supreme Court of the United States will try to resolve that conflict between the circuit courts. That's called a circuit split. Because the Supreme Court wants to prior prioritize their cases and they want to have consistency in the application of the law throughout the country. So there's this circuit split. And in 2008, um, we get this case that goes to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court's going to resolve this circuit split. Does the Second Amendment protect an individual right or a collective right? In this case, is called District of Columbia versus Heller. And in this case, the, uh, the plaintiff, uh, Dick Heller, was law enforcement officer in, in D.C., and D.C. had a ban on the possession of an operable firearm. So here you have a law enforcement officer who can possess and carry a firearm while he's on duty, but when he gets home and he's off duty, he cannot have a firearm in his home that is operable. So uh, he, he has to disarm 
and make the firearm inoperable um, while he's off duty. So certainly if there's any individual right to keep and bear arms, this particular law is a violation of that right to keep and bear arms. It's in the home, not carrying in public, and you can't even have an operable firearm. So this case, uh, District of Columbia versus Heller, eventually reaches the Supreme Court and it only reaches the Supreme Court after many impediments. Uh, there were multiple plaintiffs that were thrown out uh, for lack of standing. There were uh, lots of problems trying to get through the appellate process, but eventually one of the plaintiffs, Dick Heller, eventually makes it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, so it's a very closely divided Supreme Court on this on this issue, in a five to four decision says that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right and that it protects an individual right, an individual right, to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia and to use that arm for traditionally lawful purposes such as self-defense within the home. So it's not until 2008 that we know from the United States Supreme Court that the Second Amendment protects an individual right, not a collective right. It's not connected with the service and the militia. And I'll, I'll touch on that point here just briefly. So when you read the Second Amendment, it starts out a well-regulated militia. So how can I say that this, this right recognized by the Second Amendment is not predicated on service in the militia? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, it has to do with construction. Um, and the Second Amendment is constructed in a way that it has a prefatory clause and an operative clause. The operative clause is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's the substance of the right. The operative clause of the Second Amendment is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And the prefatory clause simply states a purpose, not the only purpose, just a purpose. A well-regulated well militia being necessary to the security of a free state. So they're saying here, this is a reason for the recognition of this individual right, that a well-regulated militia, which is all able-bodied men at the time of the founding, and well-regulated at the time doesn't mean uh, like we would think of it in today's terms that, um, you know, that is subject to regulation or law. Well-regulated simply meant trained, okay? So trained, able-bodied men being necessary to the security of a free state, that's the purpose, okay? But it's not the only purpose. It's just a purpose. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So you might, for example, with the First Amendment say that uh, 
free speech um, is necessary for maintaining a well-educated society or a populace. So a well-educated populace being necessary to the preservation of a Republican government, the right of the people uh, to speak shall not be infringed. You could say something like that. That's a purpose, but it's not the only purpose. Okay, So it's important to, to understand that distinction. The right, the individual right, is not predicated on service in any kind of militia. So back to the Heller case. So we get this decision from the Supreme Court in 2008 that recognizes an individual right to keep arms, to possess arms in the home for traditionally lawful purpose, such, purposes such as self-defense. But remember, this is a case stemming from the District of Columbia, which is a federal enclave. It's not a state. So the Second Amendment by 2008 has still not been incorporated to apply to the states. It only applies to federal government action. And that remained the case until 2010, where in uh, McDonald versus City of Chicago, the Supreme Court uh, issued another opinion with respect to the Second Amendment. And this is from the City of Chicago, which is in the Seventh Circuit. Obviously, it's not a federal enclave like D.C. It's a, a city in the state of Chicago, or in the state of Illinois. And in that case, the Supreme Court ruled and issued opinion that the Second Amendment is incorporated to apply to state and local government action to the ex same extent that it limits federal government action. So it's not until 2010 that the Second Amendment is selectively incorporated to apply to limit state government action. All right, so that was 2010, and there was really no um, action at the Supreme Court with respect to the Second Amendment until 2022, or really 2021 when the case was, was heard. Uh, by the Supreme Court, but that was in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case. And in this case, the court was reviewing the issue in New York of whether this proper cause requirement to obtain a license to carry a firearm was an infringement on the Second Amendment. So remember, we've got District of Columbia versus Heller, which recognized that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep arms in the home for lawful purposes. And then McDonald versus City of Chicago 2010 incorporates the Second Amendment to apply to the states. And then here we have New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which is taking the issue of carrying firearms to the Supreme Court. And in New York, there was a law that said that to obtain a license to carry a firearm, uh, the person applying for the license had to show some good reason, some proper cause for wanting or needing a license to carry a firearm. 
And the problem with this law was that the whether or not the person showed proper cause was up to some bureaucrat, and that discretion was more often than not abused. And it was very difficult to obtain a license to carry a firearm. And the problem was that having as a reason, as proper cause, the reason that you wanted a firearm for self-defense was not a good enough reason um, in the eyes of most of these officials who were uh, deciding whether or not to issue a license to carry a firearm. And the Supreme Court, in a 6-3 to three decision, uh, struck down the New York law. And this opinion by the Supreme Court is important not only because it struck down the New York proper cause requirement, but it also affirmed and gave guidance to inferior courts, to lower courts, about how to analyze challenges or restrictions on the Second Amendment. After Heller and McDonald in 2008 and 2010, many courts that were not friendly to the Second Amendment were applying this interest balancing. How important is the right versus how important is the government interest in restricting that right? And that interest balancing um, under the tiers of scrutiny tests is pretty subjective, and judges could make the calculus come out how they wanted. So if they were anti-gun, they would come down on the side of the government restricting the right. And if they were pro-gun, they would come down on the side of uh, the individual right to keep and bear arms. And this sort of chaos among the courts had to be resolved. And the Supreme Court finally did that in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And in this case, they said that this tiers of scrutiny is not appropriate for analysis of, of the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. The courts need to look to the text, the history, and tradition of the Second Amendment. If at the time of the founding, there were not restrictions that were analogous to the proposed restrictions being challenged, then that, cha that law is unconstitutional and not consistent with the text, history, or tradition of the Second Amendment. So here we have uh, the court outlining the proper analysis of Second Amendment cases, but they also recognize this distinction between keeping arms and bearing arms. So remember, Heller was about keeping firearms, possessing a firearm in the home, Bearing arms is about carrying the firearm on your person in public. There's this sort of rule of construction, rule of interpretation, that you don't interpret two words to mean the same thing where they could have been said by one word. Okay, so um, the right to keep and bear arms, if, the, if keep and bear meant the same thing, then the founders would not have drafted it that way. They would have been um, 
duplicitous in their language. Okay, so where two, two words are used, they should be interpreted to mean different things. And I think um, literally the words do mean different things. To keep means to, to keep or possess. To bear means to carry. Um, and the Supreme Court said that in the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case and said that the right to keep arms um, in Heller, they, they affirmed that decision, but also there's a right to bear arms by carrying in public and that the proper cause requirement in New York was a violation of that constitutional, that individual right protected by the Second Amendment. So there you go. That's the Second Amendment. Um, we talked about, it's kind of a long history, but it's really, a lot of people don't recognize that much of the, much of the right wasn't interpreted to be an individual right or a right to keep a firearm in the home or to carry until in the last uh, decade or so, a little over a decade, since 2008. I want to point out just a few things, uh, some, I think, some important language from the Bruin decision. It says, the, the court said that we know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. And it's not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to the defendant's right to confront the witness against him. And it's not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to carrying a firearm for self-defense. So in the wake of the Bruin decision, there's going to be a lot of litigation. There already is a lot of litigation about... Uh, what sorts of things can be restricted under the Second Amendment? Uh, do felons have the right to keep and bear arms? Is it only violent felons? What about white-collar felons? Uh, what about magazine capacity limits? What about so-called assault weapons bans? Um, I think a lot of these issues are going to come before the Supreme Court in the near future, uh, especially issues actually more uh, pressing is the with respect to the ATF, the Al uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, uh, and their regulatory authority? How much authority do they have to restrict certain items, like um, bump stocks, like pistol braces, um, and in a future episode, we'll talk about the recent regulation from the ATF that was adopted, um, basically turning law-abiding citizens into felons who don't willingly register uh, their pistol stabilizing, their firearms with pistol stabilizing braces. Um, I think it's unconstitutional. I think it's a violation of separation of powers. I think the ATF is out of control in their um, assertion of authority. 
And I think we, it's important to talk about that. So I'll, I'll definitely talk about that in a future episode. But I want to go ahead and recap here because I'm already over 30 minutes for this show. So what is the Second Amendment? That's where we started the show. That's the question we started with. And that's where we'll end. The Second Amendment was one of the first ten amendments to the United States Constitution. And it recognizes the individual right to keep and bear arms. It does not grant the right. It simply recognizes and protects a pre-existing, God-given, natural right to self-defense. And by extension the right to defend yourself with arms. For now, that's where we'll end our discussion of the Second Amendment. Definitely a topic we'll come back to. And if you're interested in more, I'll include a few useful links in the show notes. And don't forget to go back, if you haven't listened to it already, Episode 5, where we talked about the Bill of Rights more generally. Thank you for tuning in, and if you enjoyed the show, as always, don't forget to like Uh, and subscribe. I look forward to talking with you again next week when we will discuss jury nullification. Until then, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember... You are the Forge of Freedom.